0: You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Bodker, and I'm joined with my two friends. We're back again after I feel like three years of being away. Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler has come out of the cave, and he is with us from the University of Colorado. Not necessarily the cave of the University of Colorado, but somewhere. How you doing, buddy? <laughs>
1: good it's good to be back sometimes it feels like a cave yeah i'm sure but there's there's more windows
0: (laughs) (laughs) totally it's
1: like a cave with windows i
0: just hope there's no bats in that cave because that just makes for an (laughs) awkward place yeah well, how's it going? <laughs> I left you guys speechless on that one. There was, there, 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 was, there was something so meta about the bats in the hospital. that. Yeah, just I don't be.
1: know. I was thinking about rabies. I don't know what Stephen was thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> Some kind of zoonotic
2: crossover <laughs> there. So. Yeah,
1: we were both we were both an in infectious disease immediately when you said yeah. that. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah.
0: So great. Well, it's good to have us all back. It's fun to be back. And we have a lot to cover because it's been a while to having Mark. And we paused a couple of things, went in Mark's feedback on a number of things. Before we get going, though, always the usual. I love the reviews. had this one from the dark room doc. And that sounds so mysterious. Yeah, speaking like, of
1: caves, yeah. Yeah, uh, I was wondering, is, you think, is that a radiologist, maybe? <laughs> oh, yeah, that was my maybe. thought. Oh, good.
0: <laughs> I didn't even think about trying to go that direction. Yeah. Uh, you know what I thought of? I think I, I think I thought of like Darkwing Duck. Are you from the like the? That's
1: what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. really does. It has the yeah. Was that was that your like era? That.
0: I don't think so. I mean, I mean.
1: I feel like duck I was at the, the tail end oh, of yeah. the tail end of that. Oh. I, we definitely, yep, hey, you, you saw it coming. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Still>. <laughs> I was at the very beginning of it, right? So the things, home. the
1: things that we've missed out. Oh my begun. gosh, I love it. I know.
0: Okay, so from dark room doc, right, or duck wing duck, whatever you want to say, <laughs> or whatever I said it. Do you ever feel like you're the only person you know that is taking this pandemic seriously? Man, I have a lot to say about that, by the way. So it can be a lonely place to be when everyone you know thinks that COVID is a hoax or that we just need to get herd immunity, or they wonder why the heck you would keep your kids home from school. Well, this podcast makes you feel like you have intelligent friends who are talking about COVID with you. These guys are down to earth and thoughtful. They're open-minded and curious. It's super comforting to feel less alone in this crazy pandemic, and after listening to the po- podcast episodes, more informed too. So that was awesome. Thank you, Dark great. Room Doc. His title, The Friends You Wish You Had. You're a friend. You know, all this reminds me of, guys, is like, I just wish there was a way to have like an exchange and interaction because we read these. I'm like, Mm -hmm. man, I just want to hang with these people. Like, I want to hang with (laughs) you guys because I do feel, I'm sure you guys are similar. I feel alone a lot. And uh, luckily, I have my once a week fix with Stephen and Mark or just Stephen or whatever it is. But uh, not everyone has that. And. I just feel all the more, especially as fall and with CU being on CU's campus and some of the stuff that's happened, and then the personal responses of like why people think CU is doing what they're doing. I'm like, oh my gosh! I just honestly, I feel like I have like the internalness of road rage sometimes. <laughs> it's just like I want in my inner disposition just to scream bloody murder, but I don't. Yeah. I just take it on the chin. And I, yeah. There's a know. lot of
1: pressure. I mean, I think, and the the isolation, as we've talked about, really adds to that yeah. pressure a lot. And you know, I've been trying to be more intentional about getting, seeing people, and spending time mm-hmm. with people in ways that that make sense. And that's been really good. So you know, I think that's really really important. And also to take breaks from sort of the, you know, mm-hmm. it's funny because we talk so, you know every week about COVID, kind of go deep dive, but it's nice to get away from it too. Mm -hmm. So that's been helpful, but I definitely, I hear that, you know, there's, there's a lot of sense of, and I think, as we've talked about too, the sense of like, when there's, we all long for a shared understanding. So we want to be in community with people. We want to have sort of a shared, shared basic understanding so we can move from there. Mm -hmm. And when some, some of the time it feels like we're just rehearsing the same, you know, sort of basic stuff or not basic in terms of simple, but basic in terms of like, what's the foundational agreement Mm -hmm. that's also tough so i hear you i I hear you
0: yeah i know that i'm preaching to the choir right about now but i just it's hard and i agree so thanks dark room doc for saying this because i already was feeling this before you put this on and i'm like good i'm glad this is out here i just i do feel alone and it's hard i'm glad we have a community i wish there was a way that we could facilitate uh group meetings together. we we'll all just hang and talk about how we take this seriously, but we're not afraid and all this stuff and, uh, to have that kind of comradeship, but thank you. Continue along here. We are always looking for support, financial support, still paying off. We're almost done, about 350 left. If you want to contribute, PayPal, Venmo, all in the show notes. If you want to contribute monthly, you can do that at patreon.com slash pandemic podcast, all in the show notes. And you know, I didn't even tell you this, Mark, but I have a Living the Real episode coming up on Wednesday. And guess who's coming on? You have no idea. Well, maybe you do know, because I asked you. <laughs>
1: Is a, is a Dr. Yeah. Nussbaum? Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I'm he's, so excited. He's so great. Yeah, I am really excited. So
0: today at three, uh, yeah. I have a little conversation with him. It'll come on a Wednesday. I'm super Good. excited. And can I be honest? This, this, this is stays in this room and I yeah. guess everywhere that, go, that this podcast goes. <laughs> <But> <laughs> so this <I'm>, room and,
1: <laughs> and the thousands of others. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a little nervous. Yeah. Uh, for the, for for the, the episode f- or just to talk to him? Just talk to him. Oh, yeah. Well,
0: I mean, he's yeah. great. He's so friendly, but I'm just like, he has so much... And I want to make oh, sure yeah. I can milk this. Like I want to get everything out in 30 minutes, right? <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> so, start
1: with that. Just tell him that you just okay. want everything and just let him go. <laughs> okay. I'm sure he'll, he'll come prepared. <laughs> yeah, that'd be go. great.
0: So anyway, <laughs> it drops on Wednesday. I'm really excited. Also, if you want to check out my Paying the Profit survey, livingthereal.com slash survey, 15 minutes of your time. It's a great self-reflective exercise on what really is the most important to you and what's holding you back. So if you have time, I love it. It gives me feedback on how I can help on my other side. So check it out love to have you fill that out. 15 minutes. Okay. Let's get into the good stuff. I have a question for you guys before we start this off. This is my own personal question that deals with an issue that I think I have the answer to, but I want to bang it past you, right? So living and working on a campus is incredibly difficult when it comes to COVID. Yeah, we know that on a large scale, but just dealing with constant questions from students because no one lives alone because they're too poor. And if you live in Boulder, you know it's really expensive to live there. And so you have four to five, six individuals living in one small apartment. Almost they feel paralyzed to go anywhere because someone is with someone at some point in time. So here's the new situation. We have someone who got COVID about a month ago, had no symptoms, test positive, right? So they're done with it right? They're immune. And so, they, and so now they were exposed again, right? And so then the question is, what should he do? And my, my answer was, well, I guess you're immune. So just carry on your day, go to work as normal and don't tell, you don't need to do anything. Would that be the correct answer? Or is this always like, well, you should be tested anyway. Is, there, is it complicated or is this actually the one situation I can just tell people, <laughs> just be free for four months at least?
1: Yeah. I mean, I can take a stab at, I think, like I said, we don't know for sure. Right. But I think that's probably a pretty safe scenario, especially if the, depending on what the nature of the second exposure was, you know, if this was a kind of a casual contact in which they cross paths with somebody who later found out they had COVID and they had already had it, then it's likely that they had some circulating antibodies anyway. And it's unlikely that they'll have enough of a viremic response, so enough Mm -hmm. virus in the blood to be spreading it robustly around. So as long as they're doing the things that we're hoping we're doing anyway, which, you know, masks, physical distancing, hand washing, then I would say that a repeat test at that point is probably not very useful. And I I don't think, you know, I'd be interested to hear from an Epi standpoint, Stephen, what you think, but like in this particular setting in which there's so many crossovers and so much mixing going on anyway, that the meaningfulness of another quarantine at that point, I don't, it's hard for me to say. I would have to know a little bit more about the specifics. I do think this is a case also where you can sort of trust your judgment and sense, you know, about the situation and what's going on in the broader CU community yeah, and just make kind of a, you know, make your prudential judgment and move on with life um, and not agonize over it too much. I don't know. Steven, you have any thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Just reiterating that, you know, having been infected with COVID is not a, I wouldn't say gives you license to like throw ragers and, you know, have big parties and, you know, start, I don't know, Looking the poles on buses <laughs> and things you know sure. like uh, you there know. are other things outside of covid you can get yes right right and it's and it's worth you know there there is still a small chance you can get reinfected and yeah. still spread it and these sorts of things so i think it is still worth being you know cautious and mindful but but probably a second a full isolation period is probably not necessary you know just keep maintaining distance as always and i think that that's the safest thing you can do
0: great okay All right, that's good. Thanks for answering my question. I feel a little bit better about that. So let's move on. It's now fall, well tomorrow, sorry, I'm a little preemptive. Some of you guys reading this, it's in the middle of fall. Tomorrow's fall, it's almost fall. I know it's on people's minds. Flu's coming up, we know about this. So I'm gonna throw it to you guys, first and foremost, how do I know the difference difference between flu and COVID? As I prepare, how how am I gonna be able to distinguish the two or am I going to be able to? Whoa, somebody's got a ring. Is that, oh, sorry, that's me. I apologize that I came through. Okay, <laughs> I think it's, a good ring. it's me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, so I'll take other, I'll take yeah. that first. So one of the things is a lot of the initial symptoms of both COVID and the flu are very similar. So you have fevers, potentially myalgias, sometimes some GI side effects. Definitely the respiratory stuff. So cough, shortness of breath. Ultimately, for the you know the individual in the community, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to tell the difference between an infection with the flu and an infection with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, nor is it particularly, you know, I think I was going to say it's not super important to know. Of course, it's important to know from an epidemiologic standpoint and, quarantining and all quarantining and all of that. But that being said, I think that it remains to be seen a little bit in terms of what the burden of flu cases and covid cases are going to be because the recommendations may shift a little bit at this point in you know in a time when the infection rates seem to have sort of stabilized a little bit and we're starting to just see the beginning of the flu season i think it's a really good idea to just see your doctor get tested know and know with the PCR, you know, which pathogen is it, because that helps to guide what you need to do in terms of your close family contacts or your work contacts and your quarantine. Yeah. Um, and so we're not in a situation in which I feel like that is going to overburden the healthcare system. If you're sick with those typical symptoms, you should be seen and tested, and then you'll have a little bit more information to make wise decisions after that.
0: Great. Steve, anything to say?
2: Yeah, no, exactly that. I think that it is it is going to get harder and harder to tell, both between flu and COVID, and then also all of the other yeah. coronaviruses and other things that spread in the wintertime. So yeah, if when in doubt, see a physician, get a test. I will say, I I think we may have mentioned this on one of the previous podcasts, but the Southern Hemisphere has just finished up with their flu season, and they've actually had the lightest flu season that they've had in mm. recent memory. In part because all of the measures that they took to to reduce the spread of COVID are also effective against flu. Sure. So that's, that's kind of working in our favor. So hopefully there will be less circulation of both because of all of the things we're doing, like wearing masks and distancing and these sorts of things. So you know, that'll help sort of tamp down the burden of illness from both of them. But I think it'll be hard to tell. And so really the only way is, is with the test. So. Great. Sounds good. Well, we're kind of in this theme right now, so let's continue this on. It's winter.
0: We're going to get close to winter. We know it's on our mind. You know, I have to admit, you know, with say two months ago, back in July or even maybe May or probably July, I put a lot of lot of emphasis on the va- the future of the vaccine like my kind of everything was on this bet right like hey once the vaccine's here we're all gonna be good you know now as we're getting close to the vaccine we're having a lot of media come out with all these strong caveats like yep the vaccine could be coming out soon and this is not gonna be the solution immediately so i want to throw it to you guys just to riff a little bit about what is to be expected about winter? Like, what are we going to expect? The vaccine may be out by November or December, some, but it's not going to be widely available. The holidays are here. Spring's going to be coming. We're all really excited about the pool at the end of May, you know, like just gearing up for it. What are we going to expect? What's going to be like over the, over the winter? i throw it your eyes away. Like, what, which, How should we prepare for this?
2: Yeah, so it's nobody is entirely sure what what COVID transmission is going to look like over the winter. Earlier this year, there was a report that was put out by researchers mainly based at the University of Minnesota, but um, Mark Lipsitch here at Harvard was also on it, basically outlining what some of the scenarios were. And one of them was a pandemic that goes forward in multiple waves, which is something that we normally see with flu. But another was just sort of this like Bubbling epidemic that kind of churns forward over time. And and you don't really see these like big new waves of infection necessarily, but it just kind of like ebbs and flows in different places at different times. We've largely been in that, that second paradigm for most of the summer. And the question is whether that'll change when the winter comes around. Part of the reason we think it might is because, again, flu pandemics do this. But also flu pandemics behave a little differently than the way that COVID has behaved already. For most of the flu pandemics that we know about, transmission basically trailed off in the summer almost entirely And then really surged back in the winter, whereas in certainly in the United States, it's it's been pretty well sustained all through the summer. I think that it still has a a decent chance to resurge in the winter, something that we need to be prepared for. But it's 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 not a certainty. Um, I'd put it as a high, high likelihood that that we'll see a rise in cases just because there are still plenty of uh, susceptible people in the population. People are going to be crowding indoors more. Um, And we know that the regular coronaviruses circulate in the winter. And so all of the same things that contribute to their spread are probably going to contribute to the spread of COVID too. So, so I think we need to be prepared for that, that sometime in the, in the next four to six months, we, we might see a rise in cases that sort of unify it across the country and really across the Northern hemisphere. So I guess the question is, what do we do with that? You know, there's, again, this is one of these situations where there's some uncertainty, but I think that, that. Prudence dictates that we prepare for the possibility that it will occur, and then maybe be overprepared in case it doesn't. But a lot of the measures that we can take to to prepare for this are are simple ones and are things that we already know how to do. So, I think one of the most important things is something that we talked about earlier this spring: is reaching out to the people who we know are at higher risk and making sure that they have everything they need to get through the winter. Um, winter is often a harder time. For really just for people in general, in terms of mental health, in terms of physical yeah. health, all of those things can kind of take a dip in the winter. And so if if there's somebody who would really benefit from knowing how to use Zoom right now, <laughs> now and is you're able time. to teach them how to do it, I would say do it now, because that might get a lot harder to do as the winter comes along. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of question about wintertime travel, uh, especially around the holidays. You know, that's that's another signal that we see from flu from year to year is that usually there's a little spike in flu cases right after Mm -hmm. Christmas and New Year's. So everybody's sort of mixing with their families, traveling a lot, come back. So there's sort of this little explosion of, of flu cases after the holidays. And so, so that's that's a difficult scenario too. Is made even more difficult by the fact that again, we know that that oftentimes, you know, there's there's this increase in risk with age, and and holidays are often characterized by people of different age groups mixing together. Whereas most of the rest of our lives, certainly my life, is is a lot more stratified by age group, and so I, I pose less of a risk for for older people who are at higher risk of infection. So. Thinks, I, again, I think the most th- the most important thing we can do right now is sort of the mental preparation yeah. for what we're going to do, and sort of mm. set expectations for our families and for our loved ones mm. of sort of just how do we ex- how do we want these things to look. So even if we do end up seeing people over the holidays, will we be wearing masks? Can we move things outdoors? Can we think about you know staying? You know, if we normally all stay in one house, can we think about maybe staying in different places right now? Yeah one of the things I'm thinking about is maybe staggering my travel for the holidays so that it doesn't actually align with the holiday season and thinking about whether it might make sense to travel sort of during off periods where there are fewer people, you know, trying to ram their way through airports and that kind of thing. So, All of this just sort of based off of the principles of trying to reduce the number of opportunities a given person has to spread to other people. And I, I don't think that that means that we have to sort of, uh, it, it, there's been a lot of. I don't think this has been as prominent in the U.S., but in the U.K., there's been this like one of the big taglines is this question of is Christmas cancelled? Everybody's like <laughs> wanting to know like if Christmas has been cancelled or not, and they're sort of evaluating all of Boris Johnson's dictates as to, like the probability or whether or not Christmas will be cancelled. Like, there's this big oh big Grinch, you know, sitting in Downing Street. <laughs> over there. But but I don't you know I don't think that this means that like you know Christmas is cancelled or yeah. you know the holiday season is, is necessarily like. Uh, I, I think that there are ways that we can do this carefully, for sure. Um, but I think that it's important to think now about exactly how we're going to do that, given everything we know. We know we know a lot about how to stop and prevent the spread of COVID, and we just sort of need to figure out ways to implement it now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mark?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, and this may go without saying, but just the importance of getting together or being together mm-hmm. in a year like this and recognizing, too, that even that some of the people who are at higher risk also may have a really real need to you know see the kids or to engage with family and and involving them in the, this, this shared decision making in terms of like you know what do what do you want what do you feel comfortable with um, and and if the answer is You know, I think the answer is I really need to see people. I really want to be close. Then the question is, okay, then how do we? You know, how do we make that work? How do we make? You know, what can we do to make that happen in a way that's safe? You know, and and all the things, but also not forgetting just the importance of that. And you know, I think we. It's hard. It's hard to kind of quantify. It's hard to talk about the intangible losses that we've had, you know, during this time. And I think that we can recognize that they're real, just like the other losses that we've had, you know, and try and find ways to sort of to, to mitigate those without denying the reality of the situation that we're in. And I think I agree with Steven. This is probably the time to start having some conversations about the holidays with the family and just to just to see. You know, and I'm sure every family has lots of different just a big spectrum of people's levels of comfort people's levels of relative quarantine we have new babies you know that have been born over the last six months or whatever that we Mm want to introduce to the family and how do we do that safely and and there i think there are no very clear cut and dry guidelines which is of course the difficulty but if we can find good processes good ways to like talk to each other about it that's helpful I also think that keeping in mind things like the relative prevalence in the areas that you're at is useful. So, you know, if you're in a place in which the case counts are super, super low in general, then I think that can factor into your decision a little bit. Whereas if you're in a place where you're often exposed to people who have like Matt, for instance, you're you know kind of in a higher exposure scenario just because of the nature of your work, that that may play into the way that you quarantine before you see somebody or something like that. Yeah,
0: and that gets to that where you're absolutely right. I think now is to have discussion about the holidays and what you plan on doing. And I think the benefit, if you look at this as a half cup full situation, because of the pandemic in March, we're now we're you know we're eight months in or so by the time holiday seasons are coming in, we've adjusted to the new normal. Some of us have been able to work from home way more often, which before the pandemic it wasn't possible. So there's this new possibility of. A section of people that is much larger that's able to stay at home and work from home and not go in as often. So I want to propose to you guys, as we begin to have those discussions, what could we propose to our bosses, right? If we, if you do have the opportunity to stay um, at home and still work, to say, okay, I want to see, for example, like we want to see our nana, right, on Christmas. Ideally, she's quarantined, obviously, so she's. It's no big deal about her. What, how should we go about doing this? Like how many days before Christmas is a good time to say, okay, can I have this time work from home so that I can be on Christmas? What, what would be the, the, the right amount of days to feel safe to go to someone who is at a high risk?
2: I mean, as far as I can tell, I think the, the 10 to 14 days is uh, still, you know, it's about it. 14 is best. Yeah. 10's probably all right. Great. So yeah, and yeah, I think that's what we want to propose. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that sounds totally reasonable. And, you know, I think we see a lot of the initial symptoms come in the first a little bit sooner than that. So if you're going to get symptoms, then it's often. So and the the reason that that range, I think that Stephen quoted as 10 to 14 is in the case of if you have like an asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic case. And again, as we've talked about, there's all the, you know, relationships around maybe you're a lot more likely to spread it if you're symptomatic than if you're asymptomatic and depending on what sorts of measures you're going to take when you see can you squeeze that a little bit and make it like a you know a less of a quarantine i think that's that's a bit of a question too but 10 the safest would be a 10 to 14 day okay
0: great awesome well, that's good. I hope, I hope you guys to have that conversation for those of you who are actually listening to begin to have those conversations now because a lot of things have to be moved around to be able to uh, celebrate those holidays uh, with your friends and with your family, which is really important for us, I'm sure for many other people around as well. Let's talk about the next thing. I want to go back to long haulers. This is just, it continues to be Uh, a really media-saturated topic right now. I see it many times a week. It started off about a month ago, kind of on our radar on the media. And now I just saw, you know, there's now programs being unleashed for long haulers. Uh, Mark, I was talking about this. It was just fascinating. I think, I don't know if it's in New York or where it was at, but initially it was a geriatrics treatment. And somehow they, I don't know how they made the connective tissue, but they, they found that it benefited long haulers and they were finding uh, ways by which they were uh, grapping, grappling with it and recovering in a faster rate. So I want to throw it to you, you've been doing some research on long haulers. And the other thing I wanted to mention in context of this, at least for me, it, it made it some kind of connection. As I saw this one, this article pop up just before we went on air. It says by by The Atlantic, what COVID-19 does to the heart. So this is something that's been on the cardiologist's radar since March, apparently. And now there's been some studies being done on seeing some residue of COVID in the heart, inflammation, and uh, bringing these things together. Uh, what are you seeing with long haulers? How is maybe the heart connected to this? And I know this is, sounds tongue in cheek, but geriatrics—is is there any connection in the body? I'm like, man, like, do I age 60 years when I get COVID? And and then and then I gotta—I mean, I already feel old because I have four, or three kids, and I don't exercise. And all I need now is to lose my hair in two weeks. So throw it to you, Mark.
1: Yeah. Well, so let's talk about it. So a couple things. First, before we synthesize. Let's talk about sure. them kind of separately. The first, And I think the important thing is that I don't know for sure, and I don't think that there's any compelling evidence that the cardiac complications alone account for the long-haul covid syndrome. So I think from a from a medicine standpoint I I think it's important to keep those two things separate. Mm-hmm. So let's talk first about the the cardiac complications. So this is something that we've seen really since the first case reports in China that things were coming out and then we also saw some evidence in northern Italy about cardiac complications and there's I'd like to, there's kind of two ways that that goes. So one way is that individuals who have pre-existing cardiac disease were found to have higher mortality from COVID. We've talked about that a lot in terms of just predisposing factors, maybe related to the ACE2 receptors, maybe related to baseline functional status. So like how healthy you are to begin with. The other side of it are, is that people who have been infected with COVID, there seems to be a, a signal in terms of a higher incidence of certain cardiac complications. In particular, something called a myocarditis, now, myocarditis and viral myocarditis is something that has been described with other lots of other viruses. And it's not uh, unheard of that individuals, a small percentage of individuals who have a viral illness may have a viral myocarditis that follows that illness. And so myocarditis being just inflammation of the heart muscle itself. Um, okay. Now, the there can be some severe complications of a myocarditis and one of the things that's been getting a lot of popular press attention is that athletes um, or people who exercise vigorously during the phase of recovery before their heart is fully recovered can have cardiac events and even there's been some described deaths that they think may be traceable to the fact that you know an athlete was had COVID, had a cardiac complication, and then was exercising strenuously kind of in that post-recovery phase. Uh And so... There are some guidelines now that have been put out relatively recently, and let me just pull that up. I think that the uh, American College of Cardiology is the one that I'm thinking of um, here, and I can send this to you to have in the show notes, but there's a good flow chart that the American College of Cardiology put out in terms of return to play guidelines. So this is relevant for your college athletes, high school athletes, and just you know regular folks who are like to run or things like that who get... a confirmed covid infection kind of helps you stratify and figure out when it's safe to get back to back okay. to play yeah, um, and so I'll get that to you so that being said, you know, this has been getting a huge amount of attention and everything COVID has been getting a huge amount of attention. And so I do think it's important to remember that there are other viruses that cause this. That This is not as if it's like an alien phenomenon necessarily, but it is something to pay attention to. And I think also that, you know, there's been some conversations about to what degree does to asymptomatic people. You know, young folks who get yeah. asymptomatic disease, can then they have cardiac complications either now or later? Mm-hmm. I think the simple answer is possibly. and But whether that's a huge percentage, I think, mm-hmm. is unlikely. I don't think yeah. that a huge percentage uh, that we've seen that a huge percentage of young people who get COVID and are asymptomatic then have later heart manifestations. So I don't think that that's something that we need to you know focus a lot of fear about or anything like that. I think Mm. that this is just something that's worth knowing about and, and being wise about when we return to strenuous exercise. Is that fair? Yep. So that's kind of one of the cardiac, the the other interesting from a medical standpoint, cardiac complications that we're seeing are in children. So we've talked about this multi-system inflammatory syndrome that we see. And so the, there are certain cardiac manifestations that come along with, that with the pediatric population in particular. And so there's, we can talk a little bit about that maybe on some some other day, because I want to get to the long haul thing. But there's increasingly precise definitions about what this syndrome looks like and kind of the groups of patients that are most severely affected by it. And again, I think the thing to emphasize is that yes, it exists. Yes, it seems to be tied to a coronavirus infection. It does not seem to be a huge percentage of those uh, children who get the disease, but there is an important clinical syndrome that we need to know about that's related to coronavirus infection. So that has to do a lot with an inflammatory cascade, we think. So there's there's a lot of just ways that the inflammation caused by the coronavirus affects multiple different organ systems in the body. And so now, you know, that brings us, I think, to this conversation about long-haul COVID and what's going on with that. Yeah. It's interesting that I see a lot of coverage of long-haul COVID sort of in the popular press again, and it's very hard to find scientific descriptions of it, Right now, and I think it's because we're still kind of in the early phases of recognizing it and trying to describe it rigorously. There's a group at Mount Sinai in New York that has opened up a clinic for post COVID patients and that sort of thing i think is really interesting because what it helps is when you get people in aggregate and you start to recognize patterns then you can start to have these descriptive sorts of studies where you say you know these are the these are the common characteristics between these things that that we're seeing so these are the common you know this is how i would characterize and eventually what we do you know hopefully is have a a clinical syndrome that's described so a cluster of symptoms and this and you can have criteria you know often so often the way this works with other disease processes is you yeah uh, you describe a set of symptoms and then you have like major and minor criteria and if a person meets you know one major or two minor criteria or whatever um, then you can diagnose them with the disease so it's not as if there's a single blood test that tells you oh yes you have long haul yeah coronavirus but there's it, epidemiologic data or like aggregate data that we can define it. And that's a process that we've had to do with lots and lots and lots of diseases over the course of history, um, or find these characteristic diagnostic features, lump them together and decide, you know, this, this means you have it and this, or or we say that you have it. And this means that you don't Mm -hmm. things that we're looking at, you know, for long haul COVID or chronic fatigue is kind of at the top of the list. That seems to be the most prevalent and really one of the most troublesome symptoms. There's also things like global muscle weakness, loss of smell that persists for a long period of time, brain fogginess, concentration difficulties, and things like that. And so, as you can tell from that list of things, it's tricky, right? Because those are relatively vague symptoms. And, if and... You have children, you have that all the time. <laughs> exactly. So it's really and they're so caused that's... by all sorts of, <laughs> that's exactly. Like and, literally, and that's become... me. Yeah. Right, okay. right. And I think that lends itself mm. to a certain type of dismissal from some, you know, sometimes from healthcare people where, you know, it's, until this is really robustly characterized, it's easy to say, well, we don't have any good evidence that coronavirus causes xyz you know and so i think that these symptoms are probably being caused by a separate process and that's not terrible reasoning but when you do that enough then we may miss the fact that there is something going on that, that sure. needs to be seen so that's that's why things like that clinic are important i think there's you know there's so much interest right now in in All of this, there are going to be people that are looking at this and characterizing it better, and you know I think it'll be interesting to see. Hopefully, we have some some information. It doesn't seem to be caused, as far as we can tell, by persistence of the virus or persistence of an infection. It seems to be caused by sort of a lingering inflammatory response to having had the infection, even if you've cleared it. And so even if the virus is not active and replicating, there seem to be potentially some long-term effects in a subset of patients that persist because of the inflammation. Great.
0: You were saying that, I mean, no, this is is preliminary. We don't know. Is there a a demographic of people that, it, that 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 it's emphasized upon because I mean I when I read it in the media it seems to me and I could be just have a slanted like reading viewership is that it's a lot of the younger like millennials younger people who are getting not so much the older or is that just my slanted my my
1: I think that we don't know yet and I, what I would suspect is that to pick up a signal of things like chronic fatigue and fogging thinking and things like that it's helpful to have someone who is really healthy you know and feeling kind of at the top of the peak of their health beforehand and doesn't feel that way afterwards because that create you know and so i think that's probably a lot of the reason that that's and it's also more dramatic you know in the sense that like oh you know we thought this was not a per- disease of young people and let's drum up this you know and and again that that yeah. that plays into some of the ways that just the the news cycle requires our attention and demands our attention. And so I think let's wait and we'll see once we describe this scientifically a little bit more robustly. Yeah.
0: yeah. I'm sorry, it's hard for me to take that seriously when you just said it, because you're absolutely right. Because if you're young, and full of energy and you get sleep and you have no responsibility besides school, all of a sudden you feel the weight of being tired. But you're right, like I would have no clue because I don't. I probably won't remember an hour from now whether we actually recorded the podcast or not. And I'm like, oh yeah, there's the file, right? So so that, that you're absolutely right. So that's a good, but you know, we might kind of end on this. I know, Steven, you have to jet and about, feel free to, do you want to sign off now? Do you have a couple more minutes? I don't want to let you go. It's 9 He's got a, a meeting here. Yeah. In an hour yeah. or in four so I might, minutes, right? I might jet,
2: but.
1: Okay.
0: Super good to see you guys. Hey, thank you for being on, cool. Steven. It's good to see no, you. No, you, Any think last so. words? Just everybody yeah. take
2: care, and uh, I hope all those conversations with your families go well. Mm. All right. Take care, Absolutely. guys. Absolutely.
0: Thanks, Steven. Two left here. Mark and I want to end this just with I kind of want to more of a just a reflection on the millennials. And this is, we didn't talk about this, but it's, there's not much to say in this except for just maybe kind of, uh, p- possibly a little bit of empathy towards the millennial generation because there's been a lot of media hype on it's the millennials and they're in, and and they're spreading like wildfire and it's all these young people and I get it. I'm at CU. So I'm seeing it in the, you know, so put some context to this CU did a mandate two week, pretty much shutdown of, uh, of students. So please don't, it's a little nuance, which I'm a little, I don't want to say suspicious. I don't want to fall in the conspiracy theory, but they pretty much asked all students to stay at home but they can go to class, which I'm okay with. I get it. That's important. But yet also they keep the rec center center open so they can exercise, which that's the one thing I'm like, that's a little strange if you're having a mandatory shutdown. Nonetheless, they're doing it. And this has drummed up a lot of suspicion towards CU because our numbers are going up, but not dramatically. So what's with the shutdown? And rightfully so I think my perception is because there's a lot of partying going on the hill. So if you don't know what the hill is, if you're not from around Boulder, it's right off campus, a block. It it actually is a hill and it's obnoxiously loud from about 11 PM till about four or 5 AM with constant raging parties, right? So CU is just cracked down, I think, and just saying, look, we're sick of this. And we're saying a two week mandatory, don't leave your house unless you need to go to school or the rec center, which you can't party there. So that's what they're doing. And that's my guess, what they're doing. They're just trying to shut down. They're being serious about it. Some people are suspicious about it. But my guess, Mark, is just like, look, they came here. They moved all the way from Boston and across the country to, to go to class again. And to have some partiers dismiss in-person class when they've invested, especially the dorm residents, I don't think you may not get a refund. And so they're doing everything they can to ensure that As you and I well know, the best way to learn is probably in person with people around you, accountability teachers. Let's preserve this. They're not trying to take over the world. Nonetheless, I just want to throw a shout out to the millennials that like, we talk about this rise in this great article, which uh, I forgot where it came from. It might've been the Atlantic, but just this kind of spreading this, this misinformation that millennials are the center of their party in life. And that's the reason why they're spreading. And they're like, no, it's more nuanced than this, that oftentimes it's the millennials they're the ones that have the the maybe the the introductory jobs that are more service oriented. And to give them some cred, is that a lot of millennials are taking service like jobs over the over like the older school administrative. That's just kind of not universally, but it seems to be their movement of heart of like they're 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 more in this kind of sense of just wanting to not be behind a chair and a desk and be on the computer. They realize the value of actually having meaning in their job and not just pushing Paper around, and so a lot of them are in these service-related jobs, and because of that, right, they're going out there, they're exposing themselves, and they're 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 getting they're getting COVID, and they're spreading it. And so, just a shout out to that in light of that, just to give some sympathy. I know there's some partiers, but generally, the millennials that I know, hey, they're good cats, and I, I love their heart. I love where they're at, and uh, it's causing obviously a little bit of spread, but because their hearts in the right spot, right spot. So, any last thoughts, Mark?
1: No, that sounds great. I mean, I think we're always we're always looking for ways to explain what's going on. We're always looking for groups yeah. and, you know, other other people who are doing things that they shouldn't be doing that's causing the problem. And I think that's just a good good reflection on <laughs> trying not to do that too much.
0: So. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. When you start pointing the finger, you realize, I love this. Like, I mean, the only way, and go, okay, Mark, this is now going into... Pandemic to counseling session, but like the the, the yeah the <laughs> finger the finger really needs to be pointed at me way more often, Mark. Like, yeah, I mean, not yeah. not your finger, <laughs> please, my finger. <laughs> All my, of my,
1: our <laughs> listeners point at me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> please don't. The, yeah. I'll, I'll crumble. My 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 vulnerable <laughs> soul will just crumble. But yeah, my own finger <laughs> should exactly. be pointed at me, and that's and, that, and it's hard, and I I really do suck at this, and this is why I keep saying this pandemic. I I wish it never happened. However. At least cerebrally, in my mind, it has changed so much about me. Now, mm-hmm. maybe my heart hasn't been, hasn't caught up yet to my disposition, and that's okay. Usually, the heart takes a little bit longer to catch up than the mind, right? And that's my next step, right? Really mm-hmm. taking all this stuff, being with you, Mark, being with Stephen, seeing the complexity of life, seeing how I I have, uh, you know. In my Myers Briggs, I'm a high J. I'm a judging person. Now, it doesn't mean in a bad way, but like I like to, to create a verdict very quickly. And how this this whole pandemic has really helped me to say, okay, Matt, take a step back for one second before you make this judgment, and just be open minded to other things. So, Mark, thank you to you and Steven. And I don't want to thank the pandemic, but like the, I, that everything has come from this. I, my mind is somewhere, and I, I hope for all of our listeners. It's the same thing. If you are listening, if there is one thing you get from this, it's the complexity of the situation. At the same time, you still can hold on to the truth of the reality of what the pandemic really is, even though you can't bite on exactly what it is. And may you use that same disposition for the rest of your life, and that that you look life as discovery and not just like, I have to clamp down on this and be firm on this. And this is who I am. And this is who you are. That no, there is something about when you are white knuckling life, it just sucks, Mark. It just sucks. Uh, and so totally, totally didn't expect to go this direction, but you're here. I wanted to say it to you. You're a huge yeah. contributor to this. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Sure. Thanks. We'll, Thanks. We're going to end on that. So for those of you who want to reach out to me, the pandemic uh, podcast, Matt at livingthereal.com. We'd love, I mean, really, we get these We get these reviews. We love them. And I wish I could like reach out to you and give you a virtual hug or at least have some correspondence so mattlivingthereal.com, email us, let us know how you're doing. We love that engagement. I think it fulfills me. It fulfills Mark and Steven to know what we're doing is worthwhile. So please do that. If you want to reach out to Steven on on Kissler, that's weird. Steven on Twitter, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R, mattlivingthereal.com. I hope you guys have a wonderful week uh, and we'll see you again next Monday. Take care. Bye-bye.